This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist bringing you all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. Along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues and to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis. All that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit more than 20 years of the practice of psychiatry. And this podcast was pre-recorded for initial airing on November 16th, 2016, our first edition of the podcast since the election. And uh, even though this is not a political podcast, it is first and foremost and completely devoted to mental health issues, certainly cannot ignore the big news story, the election. Um, I will say this, trying to, as always, uh, be neutral for those on the side of the candidate who lost. I think it hardly bears mentioning, but I will say that uh, rather than to spend a lot of time feeling upset or depressed or angry about what happened to your candidate, uh, it would be much more productive to channel that energy into thinking about what went wrong, what could be done differently, and maybe channeling that energy into doing something positive going forward, uh, advocating for cause, um, even taking up office yourself or uh, being more active in the process. And for the side who won, uh, certainly I think you voted for your candidate based on who was most aligned with what you wanted for this country as far as the people who have co-opted certain things that your candidate has said and is now are now using those statements he made to promulgate um, hate speech and prejudice and fear. I'm pretty sure that is not at all what you wanted. So I think it probably would be helpful to speak out against those who would take his message and statements he made and uh, promote those very negative statements and graffiti and mistreatment of people, because I'm sure that's not really what you're in favor of. But certainly there are a lot of people who were very happy last Tuesday. They didn't necessarily expect to be, and a lot of people expect to be very happy to be very sad. And um, this is playing itself out uh, with protests across the country, 
and um, on the side of those who lost. And as I just said, unfortunately, some people co-opting the message of the winner and promulgating hate speech. So we do need to tone down the discourse on both sides and move forward for the benefit of everybody in the country. And I think that's going to be the challenge going forward. And we'll certainly watch carefully to see if calm prevails on both sides. So that's all I'll say about the mental health aspects of the presidential election that just took place. But I'll certainly continue to keep an eye on things and comment on major developments uh, as they may occur. But for tonight's podcast, we're actually going to start a regular information uh, articles that uh, I enjoy bringing to you. First with a stress and the workplace update. Uh, you know that I'm a strong advocate of exercise in general for any kind of stress, including workplace stress. Uh, I think exercise is very, very important. I consider it part of personal hygiene, taking care of the body. Uh, if you exercise regularly, preferably every day, you're going to feel well mentally and emotionally, not just physically. So here we have a study from the University of Basel and colleagues from Sweden who determined that being fit protects against health risks caused by stress at work. And even before I read the text of the article, just looking at that title and thinking about it, it brought to mind other articles I've talked about on this podcast about the negative health effects of stress-related uh, issues from work, uh, whether it's abusive bosses who cause more heart disease or shift work that leads to health problems, you name it. So I said, well, yeah, if you're more fit, you're going to be better able to cope with work-related stress. That makes perfect sense. And it's a well-known fact that fitness and well-being go hand in hand. Um, but the study found being in good shape also protects against the health problems that arise when we feel particularly stressed at work. And the scientists pay, uh, say that it pays to stay physically active, especially during periods of high stress. These are sports scientists from the University of Basel and colleagues from Sweden. Psychosocial stress is one of the key factors leading to illness-related absences from work. This type of stress is accompanied by impaired mental well-being and an increase in symptoms of depression. It also raises the likelihood of cardiovascular risk factors such as high blood pressure and an unfavorable blood lipid profile that would be cholesterol and triglycerides. Conversely, a high fitness level is associated with fewer symptoms of depression and fewer cardiovascular risk factors. The study was published in the United States journal Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise, and it shows that a high fitness level offers particularly effective protection for professionals who experience a high degree of stress in the workplace. To obtain this data, 
the researchers recorded the fitness levels of almost 200 Swedish employees. 51% were men with a mean age of 39 years, an average age of 39 years, and they were using a bicycle ergometer test. In addition, they measured various known cardiovascular risk factors such as blood pressure, body mass index, cholesterol and triglyceride levels, and glycosylated hemoglobin, otherwise known as hemoglobin A1c. Those of you who are diabetic will recognize that test as something your doctor uses to gauge how well your blood sugar is being controlled. The participants were then asked to provide information on their current perception of stress. As expected, the study, which was conducted by the Department of Sport, Exercise, and Health at the University of Basel, illustrates that stressed individuals exhibit higher values of most cardiovascular risk factors. Furthermore, it was confirmed that cardiovascular fitness is linked to virtually all risk factors with the risk factors being less high in people who are physically fit. The researchers demonstrated for the first time that the relationship between the subjective perception of stress and cardiovascular risk factors is moderated by fitness. In other words, among the stressed employees, there were particularly large differences between individuals with a high, medium, and low fitness level. For example, when stress levels were high, the LDL cholesterol values exceeded the clinically relevant limit in employees with a low fitness level, but not in those with a high fitness level. The LDL cholesterol is the most unhealthy fraction of your total cholesterol. By contrast, where the exposure to stress was low, there were far smaller differences observed between fitness levels. Above all, these findings are significant because it is precisely when people are stressed that they most need to engage in physical activity, but in fact that's when they intend to engage in it the least. Furthermore, the study has direct implications for the therapy and treatment of stress-related disorders. To promote a physically active lifestyle, a high priority should be attached to the systemic measurement of cardiorespiratory fitness and the provision of theoretically sound and evidence-based physical activity counseling. Now, <clears throat> what can you do about implementing some sort of improvement in your fitness as far as coping with stress in the workplace or anywhere else for that matter? Well, uh, let's just take being at work, for example. If you're fortunate enough to work someplace that's a large employer um, in a large building or sizable campus, perhaps there is a fitness center. Well, I would urge you to take advantage of it. Um, it's a benefit of working where you work, and you're entitled to it. So whether it's on your lunch break or before or after work, uh, I would strongly recommend taking advantage of that and go there to work out. 
On the other hand, if you are at a small workplace, um, uh, or regardless for other reasons, there isn't a fitness center where you work, then just go outside and take a walk when you have a break. Um, and <clears throat> you'll find that even just a brief, brisk walk may make the day much easier to get through and help you to cope better with stress. In fact, it has been found that when employees take a break during the day and go out for a walk, preferably with their fellow employees, it promotes productivity and uh, creativity uh, because people are able to talk about what's going on away from the stress of the actual task at hand, and bounce ideas off each other, and come up with creative solutions. We're going to take a break here. We'll be back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren, on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, those of you who are women who may have suffered either a lost pregnancy due to miscarriage or that it was an ectopic pregnancy, or those of you who know women who have suffered either of those health issues need to listen to this next item. A new study finds that miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy may trigger post-traumatic stress disorder. Women may be at risk 
of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, following a miscarriage or a topic pregnancy, uh, based on a study uh, done by research team from Imperial College London. The findings suggest women should be routinely screened for the condition after suffering these consequences and receive specific psychological support following pregnancy loss. The study was published in the journal, British Medical Journal, Open. The team surveyed 113 women who had recently experienced a miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy. A somewhat small sample size. The majority of the women in the study had suffered a miscarriage in the first three months of pregnancy, and that's when it's most common for that to happen, while around 20% of the women had suffered an ectopic pregnancy. This is where the pregnancy starts to develop outside of the womb and then, of course, uh, does not survive. The results revealed 4 in 10 women reported symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder three months after the pregnancy loss, 40%. Now, miscarriage affects one in four pregnancies in the UK. The rates are similar here in the US. Uh, miscarriage is defined as the loss of a baby before 24 weeks, although most miscarriages occur before 12 weeks. Ectopic pregnancies are much rarer, affecting around 1 in 90 pregnancies. What happens there is the fertilized egg usually implants in the fallopian tubes connected to the womb where it cannot grow. Thus, uh, it is often called a tubal pregnancy. And what happens is the pregnancy either miscarries or must be ended surgically or with medication. In the new study funded by the Imperial College Healthcare Charity, the scientists sent the women questionnaires asking them about their thoughts and feelings after their pregnancy loss. The results revealed that three months after the pregnancy loss, nearly four in ten women, 38%, met criteria for probable PTSD. Among the women who suffered a miscarriage, 45% reported PTSD symptoms at the time, compared to 18% of the women who suffered an ectopic pregnancy. Post-traumatic stress disorder is caused by stressful, frightening, or distressing events and causes people to relive the event through nightmares, flashbacks, or intrusive thoughts or images that appear at unwanted moments. The symptoms can start weeks, months, or even years after a traumatic event and can cause sleeping problems, anger, and depression. We often think of PTSD in terms of those who have been through combat in war, uh, it is also thought of in terms of people who have been through natural disasters, earthquakes, fires, floods, uh, also people who have been car accidents, people, victims of assault or rape, 
or witnesses to murder or other crimes. Uh, but this is the first time I recall seeing any reference in the literature to PTSD in women who've lost a baby or lost a pregnancy. The women in the study who met the criteria for PTSD reported regularly re-experiencing the feelings associated with the pregnancy loss and suffering intrusive or unwanted thoughts about their miscarriage. Some women also reported having nightmares or flashbacks, while others avoided anything that may remind them of their loss or friends and family who were pregnant. Furthermore, nearly a third said their symptoms had impacted on their work life, and about 40% reported their relationships with friends and family had been affected. Research suggests women should have an opportunity to discuss their emotions with a medical professional. Researchers were surprised at the high number of women who experienced symptoms of PTSD after early pregnancy loss. At the moment, there is no routine follow-up appointment for women who have suffered a miscarriage or ectopic pregnancy. There are checks in place for postnatal depression, but there is nothing in place for the trauma and depression following pregnancy loss. Yet the symptoms that may be triggered can have a profound effect on all aspects of a woman's everyday life, from her work to her relationships with friends and family. Previous research has suggested women who experience a stillbirth may develop PTSD. However, this is the first research to only focus on early pregnancy loss. There is an assumption that you don't tell anyone you are pregnant until after 12 weeks, uh, the main risk period for miscarriage. But this also means that if couples experience a miscarriage during that time, the first trimester, they don't tell people. This may result in the profound psychological effects of early pregnancy loss being brushed under the carpet, not openly discussed, or at the very least, depriving the couple of a potential source of support in this difficult time. The research team also questioned a control group of 50 women with ongoing pregnancies. The study results also revealed around one in five women had symptoms of moderate anxiety at three months after their pregnancy loss. In the control group, one in ten reported symptoms of anxiety. Furthermore, one in twenty women reported symptoms of depression three months after their loss. Now, just like not all people who go through a severely traumatic event, develop PTSD, such is the case here. Not all women who suffer a miscarriage or an ectopic pregnancy will go on to develop PTSD or anxiety and depression. Therefore, researchers are now investigating why some women may be more at risk than others to help medical professionals identify who may need extra support. This study gives a voice to many women 
who have suffered miscarriage and uh, often significant consequences that follow silently or without help. The message is clear. In a civilized society, it is not acceptable for women to suffer in this way. Following this study, uh, there should be added impetus to change miscarriage treatment and care. Many women need more support following a miscarriage. And the researchers recommend rethinking how women are treated throughout the experience so that they do not suffer from PTSD and other psychological impacts. <clears throat> now, in addition to improving the diagnosis of psychological disorders following miscarriage, researchers are aware of the need to assess what treatments may help. Uh, the psychotherapies or talking therapies, especially cognitive behavioral therapy, have been successful at treating PTSD, uh, but there needs to be investigation as to how this treatment should be tailored to women who have suffered an early pregnancy loss. Uh, losing a baby at any stage is devastating for parents. Uh, the outcomes of this research will hopefully mean the effects of early pregnancy loss deservedly get the spotlight shown on them and women and their partners, thanks to better understanding of those effects, get the extra support they need. Uh, the article quotes uh, a woman who suffered three miscarriages between 2013 and 2014. She was 42 years old, and although she did not take part in the trial, she understands the enormous toll of early pregnancy loss. She says, we started trying for our second child after my daughter turned one. We became pregnant with twins, but the first baby died five weeks into the pregnancy, and the second at around ten weeks. We immediately started trying again. And I feel pregnant a month or two later. I was crippled with anxiety and took pregnancy tests every day. However, we miscarried again at seven weeks. She goes on. I became consumed with what happened to us. I returned to work but was a shadow of my former self and racked with guilt that I was unable to give my daughter a sibling. I withdrew from social situations and felt unable to laugh or smile. I also found it very hard to be around or even see people had more than one child. And there you have it in her description, the symptoms of PTSD that they're talking about. She goes on to say, We were pregnant again within a couple of months, but were thrown into despair and disbelief when we miscarried a third time. Two months later, a few weeks after my 40th birthday, we became pregnant again. And uh, again, she goes on to say they had a healthy son from that pregnancy. But she said the miscarriages robbed her of her personality. She stopped engaging with life, even with her daughter, was consumed by a desire to have another baby uh, in a healthy way, couldn't find joy, had jealousy toward other pregnant women, strained marital relationships. Uh, but with a lot of support, she was able to get through it. So this is the type of situation where 
mental health treatment would help these women move on and be able to try uh, to have a baby again. Well, we're going to take another commercial break right now. When we come back, we'll have more mental health-related news for you. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest important mental health-related news. Next up on tonight's podcast, an arthritis drug boosts effectiveness of antidepressant medication. A study done at Loyola University Health System finds that giving severely depressed patients the arthritis drug Celebrex dramatically boosted the effectiveness of their antidepressant medication. Now that sounds very, very promising and Celebrex is a medication that's not a research product. It's a drug that's been on the market many, many years. In fact, it fairly recently went generic. So this sounds very, very promising indeed. Um, but there are some caveats. Uh, the problem is a very severe one. There are so many people who suffer from depression whose medication does not work or only works marginally at best. So we need to find strategies to help these patients get more relief from depression. Now, the Loyola medicine psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Angelos Hilaris, presented this study that we're going to talk about at the 5th International Congress on Psychiatry and the Neurosciences in Athens, Greece. It was an eight-week study, and it looked at bipolar disorder patients. Um, Only adults between the ages of 18 to 65 
who were in a depressive phase of their bipolar illness and had not benefited from an antidepressant. Now, bipolar disorder is marked by alternating periods of mania with elation and uh, periods of major depression with severely and extremely depressed mood, which typically last longer than the manias. And the patients were randomly assigned to receive either the antidepressant Lexapro plus Celecoxib, the generic name for Celebrex, or Lexapro, which itself is known by generic escitalopram, and a placebo. Now, I want to say here a little bit about the design of the study. Bipolar depression is also a, uh, an area of tremendous need. Patients with that probably have the most stubborn type of depression. It's the most difficult to treat of all types of depression. But it's a different illness because in bipolar disorder, the patient is prone to have episodes of extreme highs as well as extreme lows. And in order to successfully treat this type of mood disorder, they have to be on something that will keep their mood even or level so that they're not fluctuating up and down. And in general, patients with bipolar disorder should not be treated with antidepressants. Why? Well, because antidepressants are mood elevators. And what's going to happen if you give someone who has bipolar disorder and is prone to highs and lows an antidepressant, a mood elevator? Well, what may happen is that you might flip them from a low into a high mood, or you might cause them to cycle up and down more rapidly between highs and lows. And so, for that reason, in general, using antidepressants in bipolar patients is to be avoided. Now, does that mean we never do that? Of course not. Unfortunately, we do it a lot. Why? Well, because bipolar depression is so difficult to treat. Uh, according to most accepted protocols and algorithms, you get a bipolar patient stabilized on a mood stabilizer. If they're still depressed, you might add another drug that is approved to treat bipolar depression, such as Seroquel, uh, Zyprexa, or Latuda. And if they don't improve after all that, you know, then as long as you've got adequate doses and therapeutic levels of mood stabilizers, uh, keeping the patient from having the, the highs and lows and the fluctuations, then it's a little easier to justify the otherwise risky step of adding an antidepressant, but not without the adequate stabilization medication first. Uh, now, I haven't looked at the study itself, I admit, but the article doesn't mention uh, were these patients stabilized on a mood stabilizer first. If they were not, it's actually irresponsible to give them Lexapro um, so, uh, again, I don't have the information. Hopefully they were stabilized on that. But, um, in any case, if you have a group of bipolar uh, patients and you give them an antidepressant to treat their depression, then you should be prepared to track not only who becomes less depressed, but who may uh, become manic. Now, 
let's look at the results they found. 78% of the patients in the group that got the Lexapro and the Celebrex experienced at least a 50% reduction in their depression scores. And 63% reported their depression had gone away completely. These are stunning numbers. You, you never see a result in a psychiatric drug trial uh, where almost 80% of people in the intervention group get better. And, um, and 60% plus having their symptoms go away completely unprecedented. By comparison, if you look at the group who got the Lexapro and the placebo, not real Celebrex, um, only 45% of that group had a 50% or more reduction in depression, and that's compared with 78% who got the Lexapro and the Celebrex. And look at this, only 10% of those folks had their depression go away completely compared to 63% who had it go away completely when they were on the Lexapro and the Celebrex. Now, it typically takes four to six weeks before an antidepressant begins working, according to the article. I want to clarify that. People sometimes see very slight subtle benefits as early as two weeks. It takes between four to six weeks to see the full benefit of whatever dose of a medication you have someone on. But regardless, in this Loyola University study, patients who took the Celebrex began seeing a benefit from their antidepressant within one week. 55 patients completed the study, 31 in the Lexapro plus Celebrex group, and 24 in the Lexapro plus placebo group. Now, previous studies have found that depression revs up the immune system in a negative way, resulting in chronic inflammation. Regular and long-time listeners to this podcast are familiar with this. I talk about this all the time, the effects of inflammation in states of depression, inflammatory proteins in high circulation in the blood. So the article mentions this. It says, this inflammatory response affects the normal balance of chemical messengers in the brain, the neurotransmitters. Inflammation hinders the function of antidepressants that are designed to restore the normal balance of these neurotransmitters. So by fighting inflammation, the, select, the Celebrex rather, appears to make antidepressants more effective. This is the scientists who did the study. Uh, this is their explanation for why adding the Celebrex to the Lexapro worked. Now, Celebrex, you may be familiar, is an arthritis drug. It's used to treat the pain, redness, and swelling and inflammation from arthritis. It can also manage acute pain and menstrual cramps. And by itself, it does not treat depression. It's very important to mention that Celebrex alone will not alleviate depression. The study's findings support the hypothesis that inflammation plays a critical role in depression. Reducing inflammation with a drug such as Celebrex, quote, reverses treatment resistance and enhances overall antidepressant response, 
unquote, according to Dr. Hilaris. Now, such an intervention, if implemented relatively early in the course of the disease, may arrest the progressive degenerative course of bipolar disorder. Now, what's th this is a very important finding, but again, uh, more research needs to be done on a larger group of subjects, and also, I think, with a more careful design to track that these patients were stabilized so that they wouldn't be subjected to the mania-inducing effects of an antidepressant. Furthermore, I would like to see this same method studied in patients who have pure unipolar depression. There, in fact, have been some studies along these lines, and they have not found that adding a COX-2 inhibitor, as uh, Celexa is one of that type of drug, uh, didn't find that that was helpful. The studies were prompted by some findings from a study done right here in, in Emory University here in Atlanta several years ago where they found that those patients who had very elevated levels of C-reactive protein responded to treatment with a different COX-2 inhibitor that's administered intravenously instead of orally like Celebrex. But those who did not have elevated C-reactive protein, which is a member, uh, a measure rather of inflammation in the blood, uh, did not see any benefit from the intravenous COX-2 inhibitor treatment. So this is a very interesting and potentially useful finding, but more needs to be done to refine which types of patients and in what situation would benefit from adding a COX-2 inhibitor like Celebrex and what biological markers uh, would indicate who are the patients who are an ideal candidate for this treatment, whether it's uh, a certain threshold of elevated C-reactive protein or perhaps other biological markers. Uh, would I counsel patients with bipolar depression to get on Lexapro and Celebrex? No. Hold the phone. More work needs to be done on this issue before this is done on a widespread basis, uh, but hopefully this research will lead to confirmatory findings that could lead to something your doctor could prescribe for you. We'll take another commercial break and be back with more mental health-related news. After that, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org 
or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is Skip Coriel, host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week as we explore all aspects of home and family defense as we strive to defend the ones we love in an ever-changing and volatile world. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Next up... Another chapter in the ongoing and ever-growing saga of how probiotics can affect health of the brain. This time, some researchers have found that probiotics improve cognition in Alzheimer's disease patients. This is the first time scientists have shown that probiotics, which are beneficial live bacteria and yeasts taken as dietary supplements, can improve cognitive function in humans. In a new clinical trial, scientists show that a daily dose of probiotic, including bifidobacterium, taken over a period of just 12 weeks, is enough to yield a moderate but significant improvement in the score of elderly Alzheimer's patients on the mini mental state examination scale which is a scale that is a standard measure of cognitive impairment. Um, it's not a test specific to Alzheimer's disease. In particular, it's just a standard measure of memory that might be administered to anyone to uh, measure and document any problems with memory. Probiotics are known to give partial protection against certain infectious diarrheas, uh, such as Clostridium difficile, otherwise known as C. diff, also irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel diseases, which includes things like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, as well as eczema, allergies, colds, tooth decay, and periodontal disease. But scientists have long hypothesized the probiotics might also boost cognition, as there is continuous two-way communication between the intestinal microflora, the gastrointestinal tract, and the brain through the nervous system, the immune system, and hormones along the so-called microbiota gut-brain axis. 
In mice, probiotics have indeed been shown to improve learning and memory, and reduce anxiety and depression and obsessive-compulsive disorder-like symptoms. But prior to the present study, there was very limited evidence of any cognitive benefits in humans. Researchers presented results from a randomized, double-blind, controlled clinical trial on a total of 52 women and men with Alzheimer's disease between ages 60 and 95. The fact that the trial is double-blind and controlled, that's the gold standard for any research study to look at the effectiveness of a treatment on a disease. Half of the patients daily received 200 milliliters of milk enriched with four probiotic bacteria, Lactobacillus acidophilus, Lactobacillus casei, Lactobacillus fermentum, and Bifidobacterium bifidum, uh, approximately 400 billion bacteria per species, while the other half received milk that did not contain any of the probiotics. At the beginning and the end of the 12-week experimental period, the scientists took blood samples for biochemical analyses and tested the cognitive function of the subjects with the mini mental state examination questionnaire. It includes tasks like giving the current date, counting backwards from 100 by sevens, naming objects, repeating a phrase, and copying a picture. <clears throat> now, over the course of the study, the average score on the mini mental state exam questionnaire significantly increased. It went from 8.7 to 10.6. Now, to put this in perspective, a perfect score is 30. Um, most of us walking around on a day-to-day -day basis uh, would get at least a 28, if not a 29, or a 30. Uh, so for an Alzheimer's patient, you know, 8.7, you know, that's pretty devastating. It's very severe. Um, there one question on the mini mental state exam, which is thought to have been a very quick screening test for Alzheimer's disease, is it asks you to draw a clock um, with a certain time on it. <clears throat> and apparently some researchers have found that in Alzheimer's disease, that's the first question people fail, so to speak, on this exam. So 8.7 is extremely, extremely low. And although going from 8.7 to 10.6 doesn't sound like much, uh, for impairment that severe, that is a big improvement to go up almost two full points. And now that was in the group receiving the probiotics. In the control group who just got the milk without the probiotics, not much change. Um, in fact, uh, the scores, if anything, decreased further, went from 8.5 to 8.0. Now, again, although the improvement in the group that got the probiotics was modest, and all of the patients were extremely cognitively impaired, the results are important. Um, because, again, it's the first time to show that probiotics 
make a positive improvement in terms of human cognition. Hopefully with future research on a larger number of patients in over a longer period of time than 12 weeks, uh, it would show that more progress could be made. And <clears throat> also they could see if it's necessary to test if the beneficial effects of the probiotics become stronger uh, over a longer period of time. And they just tested it for 12 weeks, you know, not very long. Now, in a previous study, the same researcher showed that the probiotics improve the impaired spatial learning and memory in diabetic rats. But they say this is the first time the probiotic supplementation has been shown to benefit cognition in cognitively impaired humans. Treatment with the probiotics also resulted in lower levels of triglycerides and lower levels of <clears throat> VLDL, very low density lipoprotein. Uh, triglycerides and LDL, which you're familiar with, the bad fraction of cholesterol, are lipids that uh, are shown to be elevated in patients with poor cardiovascular health. And we know that these are risk factors for not only cardiovascular disease, but cerebrovascular disease as well, which is often correlated with dementia. And the VLDL is a subfraction of your LDL cholesterol. It's um, the most unhealthy part of the total LDL cholesterol. Um, <clears throat> the probiotics also lowered levels of high-sensitivity C-reactive protein in the blood of the Alzheimer's patients. C-reactive protein is a general measure of inflammation in the body. Um, it's measured in the blood. And we know that high states of inflammation are present in people who have all kinds of different diseases, including diabetes, asthma, as well as heart disease. <clears throat> and there was also a reduction in two other measures called homeostatic model assessment of insulin resistance in the activity of insulin-producing cells in the pancreas. So uh, the probiotics had a lot of benefits. When you look at this total picture, you see it's reducing inflammation. It's improving the function of insulin when it comes to glucose relation, uh, uh, glucose regulation rather, which of course is abnormal in people who have diabetes. And diabetes in turn is correlated with people who have dementia. And then when you include the lipids, it's really remarkable thinking how broad a spectrum the probiotics helped in terms of hitting all these different risk factors for dementia. Um, <clears throat> and makes me think, you know, how much better the prognosis of these Alzheimer's patients would have been if somehow we could get better at diagnosing the condition much earlier and start administering the probiotics right away. The findings indicate that the change in all these metabolic adjustments could be the mechanism by which 
probiotics affect Alzheimer's and possibly other neurological disorders as well. And the researchers plan to examine these mechanisms in greater detail in their next study. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't think in their wildest dreams they would expect the probiotics not only to make a notable difference, but to affect all these cardiovascular risk factors uh, and also diabetes and inflammatory disease as well. Um, a commentator who wrote an editorial about the study said that it's interesting and important because it provides evidence for gastrointestinal tract microbiome components playing a role in neurological function, and it indicates that probiotics can, in principle, improve human cognition. And it's in line with some other recent studies which indicate that the GI tract microbiome in Alzheimer's is significantly altered in composition when compared to age-matched controls, and that both the GI tract and the blood-brain barrier become significantly more leaky with aging, thus allowing GI tract microbial uh, byproducts, including amyloid, for example, uh, which we know is elevated in Alzheimer's disease, to access the central nervous system. Well, uh, again, this is very, very promising. Does that mean that anyone should run out and get this multi-species probiotic and start taking it as an effort to stave off dementia? Uh, no, uh, we can't say that yet, but might it help with you know, mental health and cognitive functioning as well as just feeling better physically and preventing all these other diseases? It possibly could. So far, the evidence looks good. Stay tuned for more uh, when I see other articles about probiotics and mental health. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's podcast. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until the next time we get together. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.